So, um, I want to introduce this message this morning with a, a book that I read. Another book, I know I always talk to you about these crazy books, um, but this, this, this message is, I think, relevant for this passage. I read this book years ago, and it's called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. That's literally the name of the book. Uh, and it was the story about a 27-year-old um, adrenaline junkie named Aaron. Um, his name was Aaron Ralston. And back in 2003, he found himself trapped in one of the most remote parts of Utah in this very narrow crevice of a canyon. He was, uh, he was trapped there literally for six agonizing days. Six days. He was hiking alone in one of those canyons that's one of the most remotest parts of Utah. He hadn't told anybody where he was going. Don't ever do that, okay? So many of these documentaries you, you see and these books you read about, they never told anybody where they were going. So while Aaron was climbing, he was making his way down this really narrow canyon. He dislodged this 800-pound rock. It became loose. It fell, and before he could get out of the way, it trapped his left hand and his left wrist uh, against the wall. 800-pound rock trapped him down there. And he's at the bottom, and there's flash floods can come at any time. And of course, when the sun goes over, you're right there. There's wild animals out there. He's thinking all the book's incredible. It's laying out. These are all the things that was going through his mind. Well, this book explains how Aaron, he's a smart kid, and he tried absolutely everything, everything. You can imagine with your left hand, the only one free, and you're in a panic already, and it's starting to sit in the reality. You're not getting out of here. He tried everything that he could. And so he finally got his camera out after the sixth day. And I remember he's bleeding, so there's blood loss. At the end of the, at the, end of the six days, he had lost 25% of the volume of blood in his body. So there's blood loss, he's weakened, he's in a condition, he's hallucinating because the heat, he's got, you know, has heat during the day, at night there's hypothermia because of the cold temperatures in that canyon. Um, he's starving, he's dehydrated, terrible condition to be in, and he knows the reality is I'm not getting out of here alive. So he gets out his little camera, what battery he has left, and he starts writing out his, recording his last will and testament, saying goodbye to his friends and family, and he's about ready to cash in. And all of a sudden, he says on the sixth day, he got this spark of, he said, divine inspiration. And he found this little pocket knife in his pocket. And it's dull, and it's about two inches long. And he says, I can either take my life right now and get this over with, or I can save my life. And you know what he did? He did the most extreme radical thing that somebody in his condition can do. He cut his left arm off to get out of there. He had to break it. I know this is... I know this is graphic, and that's good. I want it to be, because this passage is graphic and radical and gross, okay? So Aaron broke, you know, there's two bones in your arm. He broke both of them. Can you imagine having to do that when you're already in that condition? And then he had to cut through the tendon. He had to cut through the muscle. He had to cut through the nerve. He said, that really hurt. And he freed himself. He almost died on the way out. He had to rappel down a 65-foot cliff. It's an incredible book, and, you know, he's not a believer, so it's, it's going to have the language and all of that. But uh, that's pretty amazing. He, he came to the realization, I'm either going to take my life or I'm going to save it. I've got to do something here. I've got to get radical. They're either going to find my body, and that's great. I'll have both my arms, right? Or maybe I could go ahead and cut this arm off and get out of here and live life as an amputee. That would be better. But, you know, I would parallel his situation with what Jesus is saying here. This is a really radical 
passage. Everything about this is radical. I don't use that word much here because so many Christians do. Everything's radical in the Christian life. Well, if everything's radical, nothing is. But this passage is about getting really radical with our understanding of sin. The name of the message is Fighting Sin. And this is part five, and it's the last in the series, um, about everyday power. Everyday power, that's a theme we've seen that unites all of these different passages and scenarios and teachings that Jesus does here in Mark chapter 9. So just three points, really simple, really easy today. Three points that Jesus gives us here. One, take sin seriously. Two, fight sin aggressively. And three, enjoy Jesus immensely. And I'm going to show you, hopefully, with the help of the Holy Spirit, how all of those are in here. So point number one, take sin seriously. You know, Jesus never uh, toyed around with sin. He never uh, went light on it. He, he, he talked about it in terms that would shock his audience, that would alarm them, that would wake them up, and that would get their attention. In fact, one quote says this. Her name's Melissa Kruger, and she said this. This may not be the verse you share tomorrow on your Instagram feed, but these are the words of Jesus. He's good and true. He wants a better life for us, one of freedom and fullness rather than the chains of sin we'd mistakenly chose for ourselves. So we should heed his warnings. This is serious stuff. I mean, this starts out with a scene that could come out of the mafia playbook in Palestine. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones, and by the way, that word little ones, he's not talking about children anymore, even though he had set a child in the midst. Jesus is moving from the child to Christians to the disciples. Little ones mean, it's a term of endearment. It means somebody who's naive, somebody who's weak, somebody who, who can't stand up for themselves, they can't defend themselves, they don't have much to offer you. So it's like a new believer who's undiscerning and untrained, somebody like a child, right, who needs special attention. And Jesus said, whoever causes one of these weak, undiscerning, naive, brand new believers to stumble, to sin, whoever scandalizes them, it would be better for him. It would be better for that person if a millstone, now that's a huge, heavy, flat rock. You know, grain was a staple part of the diet in, in Palestine. And these rocks called millstones would be used to crush the grain into powder so they could bake bread. And these millstones were so heavy that a donkey or a, a beast of burden had to be used to turn them. And Jesus said, whoever scandalizes one of these little discerning, un, un, unknowledgeable believers, it would be better. Tie that millstone around their neck and drop them in the ocean. I mean, that, that's an agonizing, drastic, radical way to die, right? To sink in the depths of the ocean. That sounds like something that the mafia would do. Put a hit on you or put concrete shoes on you and you disappear in the middle of the Mediterranean, right? Jesus says that would be better than to cause other people to sin, to stumble. The word cause to sin is scandalizo. You know what we get from that word? Scandalize. Scandalize. So I want to make clear from the very beginning some people read this passage and they're like, everything's dangerous, everything in the world, don't go outside, don't read a book, don't watch a movie, don't go to iTunes, stay away from all of it. Um, no, <laughs> no. There's groups, sects of people that have done that, um, and those are the people that we use as examples of what not to do, right? Those are the people that usually end up, their life explodes in this, in this scandal. No, what Jesus is saying here is, because he goes next to, if there's anything that causes you to be scandalized, He's not saying everything's terrible, everything's deadly, everything's dangerous. He's saying if, if there is a thing in your life, if there's this besetting habit in your life, and you see yourself to be weak to it, you see, I'm vulnerable to this, this is not a good thing for me, 
This is the slow, I feel it, this is the slow beginnings of what one day will become a scandal in my life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, we're not dumb. God gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us wisdom. We can see, I can't really handle this. This is a weakness for me. I need to be aware of that weakness, and I need to get radical to protect myself against it. That doesn't mean everything in your life. And for some people, it will mean things that it doesn't mean for others, right? We all have different weaknesses, and I'm not even going to try to apply this in the multitude of ways it can be applied. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to do that for us this morning. But that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, take sin seriously. It's not something to just skirt around or um, to not address or to ignore. This is something we need to talk about. We need, we need to realize that, you know, this passage is a little uncomfortable. It's a little awkward. Most preachers wouldn't pick this to preach on on Easter, right? I mean, think about it. Jesus is talking about drowning in the depths of the ocean, and then he's talking about radical amputation. Tear out, that's the word, the verb in Greek, Tear out your eye and throw it from you. Hack off and throw away your hand if it scandalizes you, if your eye scandalizes you. This is really odd, the things he's talking about. And then, if that's not enough, he starts talking about hell. He starts talking about the place where there's unquenchable fire, where there's eternal torment. What is going on here? Jesus is wanting to get our attention. Did he get your attention? This is passage. Are we so numb to it? We come to this in the Bible, we're like, yeah, yeah, I know about hell. I know about it. That's a place where unbelievers go. But Jesus is using this when he's talking to his disciples, people that have committed to follow him, right? So this is really interesting, uh, and it's in here for a reason. So this is intense. He's saying, take sin seriously. It's deadly. It will kill you. In fact, that's always what sin's desire is, is to kill us. One person said this, why does Jesus use this strong imagery for Christians? Check this out. He says he's talking about repentance. He says, if you see anything in your life that causes you to move away from God's clear will for you, instead of making excuses, instead of defending yourself, instead of looking the other way, ruthlessly admit, this is wrong and I'm not going to ignore it anymore. I'm going to do something about it. That's why Jesus brings that up there. And that's why it comes right after him taking a little child and sitting that child in the midst and saying, look, if you want to be great, you got to be the servant of everybody. You know, you got to receive a little child in my name. How are these connected? Jesus is saying, if you're willing to see people that can't offer you much, like a child, they, they can't, you can't name drop a child and, and work your way up the corporate ladder. You can't network with a child. They don't have much to offer you by way of power or greatness. Uh, he's saying, if, if if that's where you are as a believer, then you will also, if you're not blind to that, then you also won't be blind to your own flaws, to your own weaknesses. There won't be blind spots in your life that people are like, how in the world can he not see that? He said those two things go together. Because a humble person receives everyone in Jesus' name, right? Like a little child. And a humble person also admits, I'm flawed, I have weaknesses, I have vulnerabilities, and I need to be mindful of them, confess them, and repent of them. That's how these two things should be taken. That's why this passage is here. And look, as a disclaimer, there have been a few people throughout the history of Christianity that have taken a real strict, wooden, literal interpretation of this verse, and you know what they did? Yeah, they tore their eyeball out, and they cut their hand off. That's not what Jesus is saying. You say, well, the Bible's literal. How do you know? Well, here's how I know. That's taboo. Self-mutilation is taboo in Jewish culture. Did you know that? If you mutilated yourself, you couldn't even go worship at the temple in the Old Testament. So he's definitely not using this literally. He's not doing that. Um, 
What he's saying is you have to get radical. This is very serious stuff. Sin is and temptation is. That's why we can't follow the prayer of Jesus, the model prayer, which says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, and then tempt fate, you know? I saw, I saw a, a, a post on Instagram this week where Jimmy Buffett, of all people, uh, he's warning people to be careful and be safe uh, in, in the hurricane. You know what he did? He took his surfboard, he drove up to the border of North Carolina and South Carolina, and he went out and he surfed. <laughs> and then he posted the Instagram that said, now, in all seriousness, uh, listen to your local authorities. This is deadly stuff. What in the world, man? The, de- the local authorities said to evacuate. And he went, and, and it's, it's interesting because the beach that he, fished, that he uh, um, surfed on was called Folly Beach. <laughs> what an appropriate name, right? No, Jesus is saying, you've got to take this stuff serious. He's not talking about cutting off your arm, tearing out your eye. Those are metaphorical, allegorical ways to understand that we have to starve out sin. We have to cut off um, you know, sin. We have to lay siege to it. That's what he's talking about. And another way to say this would be how Paul said it in the epistles later on in the New Testament. Did you guys know that there is a call on your life by the Holy Spirit to get downright violent and radical about your life? Did you know that? You know Jesus calls you to be violent? People say, what? What are you talking about? Well, listen. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 actually says this. Put to death sin. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Did you know the Bible says that? It says you're supposed to be putting your sin to death, killing it violently. This passage is talking about that. This is called uh, mortification is the 25-cent word that theologians use. It means to put to death. It's talking about sanctification. So this is not about mutilation. It's about mortification. That's what Jesus is talking about. Take sin seriously. A Puritan John Owen, can we get that quote up on here? He said this. He describes sin. He says, sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting. Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God, which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt? There is not a day, but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon. It will always be so while we live in this world. Sin will not spare for one day. There is no safety but in constant warfare for those who desire deliverance from sin's perplexing rebellion. He's right, you know. You know the first time that sin, the word sin, is ever mentioned in the Bible? You know, God mentioned it. It was in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel and hid his body. And God came to Cain and he said, hey, where's your brother at? And he's like, I don't know, what am I, my brother's keeper? And then they had this dialogue, this debate, really. And you know what God says? He says, if you do well, uh, will it not go well with you? But if not, he says this, sin, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Do you hear how eerie of a description that is? It's like God gives animation to sin. He says, it's alive. It's like this crouching beast and it wants to devour you. It wants to kill you. It wants to attack you. But the desire, uh, uh, the, the picture here is not so much how savage sin is, but how seductive and how enticing and how careful and strategic. Because this, this crazy beast is crouched waiting. He's patient. He's going to wait until your moment of vulnerability comes and then he's going to attack. That's the description that God gives of sin. It's like the Lord of the Rings movie, which I love. In the book, if you've read that, if you're a fan, you know Gollum, the creature, he found the ring of power. And you know what he did with it? He took it, 
into the tunnels of the Misty Mountains, and the, and the Bible says, oh my word, <laughs> and the Bible says that Gollum, he took all of that from the Bible. It's an allegorical story, as you know, uh, Tolkien did, but it says that this, this ring corrupted him for 500 years, corrupted Gollum, and it became his precious. He was not willing to part with it. Why? It had seduced him. It had enticed him because sin is powerful. Sin is pleasurable, the Bible says, for a season, Right? And so it's a picture of what that ring does. It's seductive. It entices. In fact, the word there, it's it's the same word that would be used in the Middle East for a lure, like a fishing lure or the the bait you put in a trap. This is all about luring and lusting and seducing and entrapping. Sin has a strategy. And what Jesus is saying is, you better have one too. You better take sin's strategy seriously. You better know your enemy and know it well enough to recognize it and put it to death, amputate, do whatever is necessary. Because listen, sin wants you in hell. Sin wants you in hell, but Jesus doesn't. That's why this passage is in the Bible. Be killing sin, John Owen said, or sin will be killing you. That's the truth. Okay, point number two. Not only do you take sin seriously, but you fight sin aggressively. Look at what he says here. Look at what he says here. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Man, this is strong language here, isn't it? And it's really interesting language. And this is all in the singular tense. You can't lose this in a corporate setting. He's saying you, singular. Your eye, singular. Your foot, your hand. This is about you. and This is about your responsibility. It's not about the people that aren't dressing modestly. No, no. Jesus says the problem's in your heart. The problem you've got to deal with. The scandal's right here, he's saying. Recognize it and do whatever you have to. Get radical with it. And the, and the tense, again, not trying to geek out on you here, but there's really special tenses all throughout this passage, and it really means this. This is urgent. Don't wait. Don't delay. Do it now. Do it. It's in the aorist tense. That's really what that means. Uh, Mark mentioned this at the beginning of service. You know, we just, I almost said celebrated. We don't celebrate 9-11. We commemorate it. We remember the tragedy that took place, the lives that were lost, uh, the, the heroic efforts that were made by so many. Uh, and one of those men that we, we celebrate his, his act of heroism, his name is Thomas Burnett. And he was on uh, United Flight 93. That was one of the many hijacking efforts by uh, jihadists on that day. And it's really interesting what happened. He was on the airplane. He recognized hijackers were there. They had taken over the plane. And he, for whatever reason, was able to reach his wife on a, a mobile device. On the, on the, I know this is back in 2001, but they had those. And he called his wife, and, and there's been a transcript passed around on the internet of what took place between he and his wife. And I, can't, I couldn't help but think of that because 17 years that we're commemorating the event, but also because of what he said. Now remember, we're talking about this is urgent. Don't mess around. Not only take sin seriously, but fight it aggressively. And I want to read just parts of the transcript. And I hope I don't get choked up because he had two little girls at home and his wife was pregnant and he realized this is is serious. So ask yourself, what would you do? Not necessarily on the airplane, but spiritually, okay? So here's what happened. His wife's name was Dina. 
and they exchanged four different phone calls. So this is, this is how that phone call happened here. Tom, he says, they're talking about crashing this plane into the ground. We have to do something. I'm putting a plan together. Who's helping you, Dina said. Different people, several people. There's a group of us. We're waiting until we're over a rural area. We're going to take back the airplane. And his wife said, no, sit down, be still, be quiet. Don't draw attention to yourself. Now listen, she was a flight attendant. And this is the way they train flight attendants to, to do that. Don't do anything radical. Don't do anything stupid. Sit down, shut up, and be quiet. And that's his wife talking too, because she knows what could happen, right? And this is, this is what Tom says. He says, Dina, if they're going to crash this plane into the ground, we're going to have to do something. I'm going to have to do something. She said, what about the authorities? We can't wait for the authorities, he said. I don't know what they could do anyway. It's up to us. I think we can do it. Dina, what do you want me to do? Pray, Dina, just pray. And then she said, I love you. And he said, don't worry, we're going to do something. And if you know, he did do something, right? All those people on that plane, they had a plan, and they got out of their seat, and they overtook the hijackers, and they slammed that airplane into a, a field in Pennsylvania, and there's a memorial set up there. And I can't help but think, you know, so often we flirt with sin, beloved. We do. We know these weaknesses that we have. Men have certain weaknesses. Women have certain weaknesses. You know, married people, single people, separated people, people in hard marriages, people with parenting, young people, old people. We all have them. And the Holy Spirit shows those to us when we ask Him to help us. And He brings conviction. But so often we don't get to this point that Jesus is talking about. This is fighting sin aggressively, and it's hard. You know, the call to discipleship is costly, the Bible says. And I don't think we talk about that enough in the church today. Or if we do, we only talk about the fight and the striving and the self-denial, and that's all we talk about. Listen, if your version of Christianity is only and always self-denial, you will miss the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ. You will. But if you never talk about self-denial and fighting sin aggressively and getting radical and getting urgent you're going to miss the joy of following Jesus because those two things are starkly contrasted here. I mean, heaven's in this passage too, guys. Hell's mentioned three times in radical amputation, I know. But also, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to live, if you want to have life more abundantly, don't settle for the lies and the deception of sin. That's what sin wants to do to you. Deceive you, dominate you, and destroy you. And Jesus says, you don't have to settle for that. I've empowered you. You can do something about this. You had the power to do something about this. You had the Holy Spirit living and thriving, flowing in your spiritual veins, that I have given you that power to say no to ungodliness. That's what Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2. He said, The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That no is not the kind of no that you would give to a RSVP of a wedding. You guys ever get stuff like that? You want to go to this wedding? in the middle of summer and wear a suit and there's no food or reception, you're like, no, I don't, no thank you, I don't, I don't, I'm busy. That's not the kind of no that the Bible talks about in self-denial. This is no, I will not, I cannot, I won't do this. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Get radical, pluck out eyes, cut off hands, cut off feet. This is talking about things that are precious to you. <laughs> My precious, we all have them, right? But also, this is talking about all of life, guys. All of life, your eyes, what you see, your hands, what you do, 
your feet, where you go. Jesus, man, there's such when you when you read the words of Jesus, it's so wise. He's saying all of life as a Christian, this message you take with you in every part of life, where you work, where you live, your family, relationships, education, school, marriages, everything, everything. It's all inclusive. There's a, this is all throughout the Bible. One of my favorite passages, I guess I'm warped as your pastor, but I love passages like this. In the Old Testament, there was a wicked pagan king named King Agag. He's got a weird name, King Agag. He was the king of the Amalekites, and this is when Saul was in charge of Israel. He was the first king and a powerful king and a warrior and handsome, and everybody lauded him. And there was a test that came for King Saul. You remember this? I'm going to preach it, buddy. God said, Saul, I want you to go and invade the Amalekites. Take no prisoners. Don't you take no prisoners. Level everything. Burn everything, destroy everything, and kill everybody. I know, that's another sermon. Why things like this are in the Bible, not for today. But this is in the Bible, okay? And Saul said, I'll do it. And he didn't do it. He attacked. He enjoyed a measure of success. But you know what he did? He spared the best things in the Amalekite kingdom. He kept them. And he kept King Agag alive. And then the prophet Samuel came, and it wasn't good, guys. <laughs> Samuel came, and he goes, hey, what's going on, Saul? And Saul goes, oh, it's the preacher. Well, hey there. But the things are great. We enjoyed a wonderful victory today. And he said, you did. And did you obey God? And he said, you, you know I did. I always obey God all the way. And he said, well, what's the sound of the sheep I hear over there? Those Amalekite sheep, uh, you're supposed to burn those. And he said, no, well, see, you've you got to understand, I kept those for a sacrifice for the Lord. See, we spiritualize our sin, don't we? He said, those were for the Lord. And then the prophet Samuel gets really down to earth with him. And he says, look, because, because of what you've done here, you're done. God's going to take this kingdom away from you. That and other things he did that Saul's heart was drifting all along. So they had an argument. And then do you remember what the prophet Samuel did? I love this because it's the preacher, man. People think preachers are just weak, anemic. You know, all they do is preach. You know what the prophet Samuel did after they finished their argument? He took a sword, and he walked over to King Agag. And the Bible says, well, first the Bible says that King Agag, he wasn't dumb. And he said, oh, it's the prophet Samuel. He said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. You remember that in the Bible? He's saying, hey, hey, look, the, the war's over here. You guys beat us. We surrender. Uh, you know, you won. You're alive. We're no, we're no longer a threat to you. So I'm glad this dirty business of war is over. Meaning, let's make peace. I'm not a threat to you. I won't hurt you. And you know, what, you know what the prophet Samuel did? He took that sword, and the Bible says he hacked Agag to pieces. He didn't just say he thrust him through, or he executed him, or he beheaded him. No, no, no. The Bible says Samuel took a sword, a prophet took a sword, and hacked this wicked king to pieces right there in front of all of Israel. Why? Why was that there? Well, you know the Amalekites were just, they were left over from the conquest. You remember when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, slaughtered Jericho, and they went into the Canaanite territory and, and did business? Well, there were a few people they couldn't quite wipe out, and the Amalekites were one of them. And to me, I think that all of that is an illustration. We're Christians, but we have remaining sin in us, don't we? There's these pockets of insurgence, of resistance, and God says, whenever you find those pockets of resistance, you don't make peace with them. You hack them to pieces. You get radical. You get aggressive. That's what that story, I think, illustrates. But I love that. A prophet <laughs> girded up his loins, probably rolled up his robe, 
and took a sword and went to town. Because that's what Jesus, it's all through the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. Fight sin aggressively. Get radical with it. Get radical. I love that about the Bible. Don't make peace with sin. We do that so often. Can you imagine, I know I got a lot of illustrations today. I want, I want you to visualize this, okay? Can you imagine meeting an enemy on the battlefield? You guys are about to go at it toe and toe to toe. Uh, but the night before, this enemy, they got a really good night's sleep at a five-star hotel, okay? Somebody made them bullets. They were served quiche and kale, and they ate protein supplements. They, they had a lavish five-star meal. They slept on, you know, a, a Tempur-Pedic memory foam mattress. They got up. They had a bullet coffee. I don't know. And they were given a, a private escort to the most strategic and advantageous place on the battlefield by you in a golf cart. You drove them over there. You sharpened their instruments for them. And then you said, now give me 10 minutes and we'll fight. Can you imagine that? How ludicrous would that be, you doing that for your enemy? But so often, friends, so often, we treat our weaknesses and our temptations and our sin like that. Instead of weakening sinful habits, starving them out, laying siege to them, killing them, cutting them off, we make peace. Surely the bitterness of death is past. This is not a big deal. That's, what, that's how temptation happens anyway. That's how the devil works. This is such a small thing. It's not a big deal. You're a strong Christian. You can handle it. And then when you give in, he says, I can't believe you did that. You're the worst Christian in the world. You should take your own life. God's so ashamed of you. Nobody will ever forgive you. You see how deceptive sin is and how cunning and crafty the devil is? You know, a, a better illustration would be in medieval times. Do you know what they used to do to... Uh, to a castle, when they would attack, if you could see sin as a stronghold and as a castle, how do you fight it? You know what they would do? They would do something called laying siege to the castle. This army would surround this castle and they knew there were soldiers in there. The enemy's in there. Um, we could go and we can climb the walls and we could lose a lot of men and go home with half an army or we can surround this castle and we can wait them out. And we can cut off all means of escape. We can cut off their food supply. We can burn their fields so they don't have any crops. If they do survive the war, at least they won't survive the winter, right? And we will lay siege to their castle and we'll wait them out. And eventually they'll starve and they'll wave a white flag over the castle and say, we're done, take us prisoner, we don't want to die. And that was a very successful method for winning war. But we don't do that. We do the other, you know. We give them the five-star breakfast in the hotel. We don't take sin seriously, and we certainly sometimes don't fight sin aggressively. Instead of malnourishing a sinful habit, we strengthen it. We feed it. When we know this will scandalize us. This will scandalize the church. This will scandalize our family. That's why it's to be fought against. God gave us the weapons we need. That's what Romans 8.13, the text I quoted earlier, it says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ to fight our sin. I know it's gruesome, it's agonizing, it's hard, it's difficult, it's costly. Denying yourself, saying no, it gets wearisome, doesn't it? But Jesus says there's heaven too. This is life. This is the more abundant life that I've promised you. Now I'm going to give you a personal illustration, okay? I'm a human being, I'm a flawed man, I'm a sinner, and I'm your pastor. <laughs> and I want you to know that this hits home for me. Because I have temptations too. I have... A very, very, very vivid imagination. I'm so thankful for that at times, and at times, I'm not thankful for it. Um, and I read a lot, and I, I use every 
tool that God gave me, digital media, the internet, to do sermon prep, to read, to study, to be knowledgeable so that I can feed you and feed my own soul and shepherd my family. Um, there is a website called, I don't want to get this right, Cora. Is that the name of it? It's spelled weird, Q-U-O-R-A. And this website, it's a place where you can gain and share knowledge. It's a digital platform that's made public domain. And it's a place you can ask questions and you can connect with people that have a unique insight into questions, problems, anything from spiritual advice to marketing techniques. Nothing's off, you know, off limits. And for some reason or another, I, I got added to an email that Cora sends out just about every day saying, look, these are the subjects people are talking about. These are the questions people are asking, even pastors. These are the answers that are given, and it's proven very helpful to me. I mean, you can get a wealth of information from the smartest people out there. But one particular night, I don't know why, uh, in my inbox was that Cora, and there were questions that people were asking, and here were a couple of them. What's your biggest secret? What's the worst thing you've ever done? And you're reading people's answers, and these people are really good writers. They craft their answers well. Now, you know, call it naivete, uh, call it just being seduced by temptation. For whatever reason, I started reading these answers. Now, what do you think people are talking about? You can use your imagination. What's the, the you know, not dirtiest, but what's the biggest secret you've ever kept? Well, probably some scandal that happened. And when you think of scandal, you think of sexual temptation. So I'm not looking at any images. I'm not watching any videos. I'm just reading these stories. And there's a part of my heart at the time that's like, this is probably not a good idea. This is getting kind of graphic, you know. And in my mind, I got a very vivid imagination. So I'm producing a movie in my mind. When I read a story, this is, I'm a weird guy. I'm like, there's a movie in my mind. I'm producing it and directing it. And so I'm starting to read these things. And it's not, it's a rated R movie. You know what I mean? And instantly I'm like, what am I doing? I've read five or six accounts of this. It was terrible. It was just terrible. And I shut it down. And I, don't, I don't think it was a Saturday night or I'd have probably told you the next morning. But man, I didn't sleep that night. I woke up the next morning. I was just, my soul was tormented. So I, I told my wife, I said, honey, I got to talk to you about this. <laughs> like, I'm, I feel, I'm so ashamed. You know, this, this, this happened. We sat down and we talked about it. And I said, man, I'm unsubscribing. Even though, there's, listen, there's a lot of helpful things on that that have helped me as a pastor. And I followed it for a year. And I said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I got to cut this off. I got to tear this out. I got to rid myself of this. And I got to destroy this thing because I can see myself being scandalized by this. You know what I mean? So if that helps you to understand, I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus talked about. And could it be worse? Yes, it could, it could be worse. For some people, it's a pornography habit. For some people, I mean, we could all share things about our life that humiliate and embarrass us, right? And we know that there's an application from this passage. We know the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit shows us that we can't handle this. This is too strong for us. We can't mess around with this. We got to get radical with it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So um, transition to point number three. Let's talk about hell for a minute. You guys are, I'm so glad I came this morning, right? Now listen, Jesus uses a word for hell that's Gehenna. Gehenna. And that was actually, uh, I won't bore you with the details, that's a Hebrew translation to a Greek translation that was the name of a valley. The valley of Gehenna, outside of Jerusalem, there was this huge valley, and it was a cursed place, because in the Old Testament, that was where Wicked and pagan kings would sacrifice their children through the fires of Moloch. It was a false god. And they would burn their children alive and offer them a sacrifice to appease this god. This demon, really. 
And Josiah, King Josiah came along uh, and said, we're not doing that anymore, praise God. And Jeremiah the prophet pronounced a curse on that place. So that's a cursed place. And now when this was written, it had been used for centuries. They would throw their garbage out there. They would throw corpses out there. They would throw animal carcasses out there. Human defecation, excrement, human waste. It was a disgusting place. And there was a fire that would burn out there for the garbage. Now you can imagine, number one, the smells, okay? Imagine the smell, imagine the sight, how gross it was. And there were maggots and worms and flies and death. It was like a dump, the worst dumpster you can imagine that was, you know, span an entire acre probably. And any time that the word Gehenna was used, people knew that's talking about fires that never stopped burning because the fire was always out there. And in the Middle Eastern arid climate, there wasn't enough rain to put it out, right? So there would always be worms out there eating and there would always be fires out there burning. And when Jesus used the word for hell, he used Gehenna. So that would describe that, death, darkness, stink, disgusting, but also this, this is unquenchable, fire that would never burn up everything. And that came to represent this longing, this thirst, this hunger that can never fully be met. And I know not many people use this when they talk about hell. I think it's appropriate. When Jesus talks about hell, I think one of the, and he's talking about sin and temptation, I think one of the applications we can see is that hell is a place where you will thirst but never be quenched. You will have longings to continue to sin and get the pleasure and the satisfaction and it will never be reached. And that's part of the torment. That's why people there gnash their teeth in anger and there's hatred. And so I want to contrast that with when Jesus talked about heaven. So he said, look, you can go to hell with, with a full body, with all your temptations, all your sin, never saying no to anything, which is what the world would tell you, right? They would say, always say yes, always say yes. Religion would say, just say no, just say no, always say no to everything. And both of them are wrong. Both are wrong. And that's our third point. Our third point is enjoy Jesus immensely. What does Jesus say? Well, he doesn't say it exactly here, but in the passage, I think it's embedded when he talks about heaven. You can say no, or you can say yes to sin and enter hell with all your members, or you can, you can practice self-denial, say no when it counts, and, and you can enter heaven, but you'll be maimed, but that's okay because you'll have eternal life, right? You'll have what the Bible says, joy unspeakable and full of glory here on this side of eternity. Uh, you will have a more abundant life. You will have what Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Your thirst can actually be quenched even here and now, Jesus says. It's not just about saying no to sin and temptation. It's about saying yes to a far superior and satisfying truth, right? Um, one of my favorite parables is one verse long. It's in Matthew 13. It's a long verse. Matthew 13, verse 44. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is, can be compared to a man that went out uh, and he found a, a treasure hidden in a field. And because of the joy over that treasure, he sold everything that he owned and he bought the field and he went and dug up the treasure and it was his. And I can't help but think about that uh, when I read this passage. Because do you think the man minded digging for that treasure when that field was his? You think about it, you see the scenario, he's digging, he's digging, clunk. He digs it up, oh my word, there's a gazillion dollars in here. There's ancient Aztec gold in this thing. And uh, the only problem is this field isn't mine. Uh, you know, it's on loan. They let me use this, you know, like uh, the people on the beach, they look for metal, 
detectors or whatever. He said, so I wonder if the guy would let me just buy the field outright. And so he goes and talks to the guy. I'm modernizing this. And the guy said, yeah, this is uh, $500,000. And the guy's like, oh, goodness. I could sell my house. I could sell my car. I could sell, you know, whatever. And so he does. He sells everything he has. He buys this field. He goes and pays the guy in cash. And they spit and swap sandals in the Middle Eastern custom. That field belongs to him. But he's buried the treasure back up. So can you imagine when he goes and he's digging for this treasure? Do you think he minds the sweat? Do you think he minds the blisters on his hand? You think the, <laughs> the muscles in his back that are aching him, do you think that bothers him? He says no to those things, right? You could stop, you know, your back's sore. No, I'm not going to stop. Why? Because there's something that is so far surpassing at the bottom of this thing. When you say no to ungodliness, you're not just saying no, you're saying yes to something else. It's what I'm telling you here. You're saying yes to a treasure. Jesus compared himself to a treasure, a hidden treasure, a pearl of great price. John chapter 4, the woman he met at the well, he said, look, rivers of joy can flow out of you that are unending, that can quench this thirst you've been trying to quench with illicit relationships. You've had five husbands, you're a harlot. Jesus, the pleasure that's to be had in Jesus is so far surpassing to this. That's what he's saying here. Eternal longings can be quenched by Jesus. So, if we only focus on self-denial, we'll miss the glory of the gospel. But if we never deny ourselves, we're going to miss out on the joy of Christ. That's what this is talking about. That's what this is talking about. So, I want to end with, with this. Um, when we talk about we had the power to say no to sin. Do you know, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says something really interesting. I'm going to read just a section of this to you. Because he's talking about our relationship to sin now that we're a Christian. Now that we're in Christ, we're united to Jesus. We have a new nature. We have a new master. We have a new perspective on life. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Paul says we view sin differently than we did before we were saved. We view sin as, as a defeated enemy now, right? Check this out. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then he goes on. For one who has died has been set free. That's us. Has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. For sin shall not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see what he's saying here? You have the power to say no to sin because it's not your master anymore. You're dead to it. Let me illustrate that. If you're in a prison cell and you die, and the prison warden comes and says, get up, get dressed, you don't have to obey him. <laughs> Why? Because you're dead to him. He no longer has any authority or claim on your life. You're alive and you're outside the prison. You get it? Your old life, guys, doesn't have any authority or dominion over you. If I die, the bill's in the mail, my wife doesn't have to pay them if they're in my name. I think. If you're a lawyer, you can correct me on that. But you get, you get the idea, right? You're dead to sin. You don't have to obey it anymore. You can say no. You've got power over it now. It no longer is your master. But you do have a different master who's much better. You know, there's no longer a throne of grace. There's no longer any tyranny 
This master is a good master, and you can say yes to him and have joy unspeakable and full of glory. So often we make sanctification like a trip to the dentist. It's always just no, no, and painful, I'm sorry, Yoon's for the dentist comment. They make the visit to the dentist great, but you get, you get the idea. Sanctification is saying yes to something far superior and surpassing to, uh, to sin and its claim on you. So that's, that's one of the last things I, I wanted to say, and to close out this message, I'll I'll close with this. When we're talking about radical amputation, we're talking about hacking and cutting and darkness and unquenchable thirst and, and self-denial. Do you know why all these things are possible for us, friends? Do you know that Jesus was hacked to pieces? He was. The Bible says he did not even resemble a man on the cross. Probably looked like ground hamburger meat. I'm serious. It didn't even resemble a man. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was spit on. His beard was plucked out. He was naked, hanging in humiliation outside where the garbage heap probably was. Talk about hell and where all the refuse of society, the no good, the smelly, the rejected. Jesus hung on a cross outside the city where the garbage heap was. Between two criminals, he was mutilated. He was, his body was broken for us, the Bible said. Blood everywhere. There was no blood left in his body. When the spear pierced his side, water came out. He had nothing left to give. How did he get there? He said no. Jesus denied himself. Do you, did you realize that? His, his entire life was saying no to something far less enticing. I mean, Jesus wasn't enticed by sin the same way we were, right? It didn't have a hold on him. But Jesus, he, he, he could have said no to the cross, right? He didn't. He said yes to the cross, and he said no uh, to the temptation in the wilderness, to the devil. It wasn't nails that kept him on the cross. It was his love. It was his love. He did that for us so that we could say yes to him, so that we could say no to temptation and sin. That's what this passage really is all about. Are you doing that? Are you taking sin seriously? I want to ask you that as your pastor. I don't talk about this a whole lot, and that's okay if it's uncomfortable. Maybe for some it should be. I would ask you to examine your life, examine your heart, examine the things that you're playing around with, that God says, look, you've got to take this serious. You're going to scandalize yourself. You're going to scandalize your testimony. You're going to scandalize the church. You know how many pastors I've read about in the last two months that have brought, brought shame and reproach on the name of Christ and on the church, and so many people are so turned off by Christianity because of it. And Jesus is saying, you're going to scandalize yourself. You don't even have to be a pastor for this to apply. Everybody in this room, this, this applies. Are you doing that? Are you taking sin seriously? Are you fighting it aggressively? Because if you're not doing those two things, I can promise you, you are not enjoying Jesus immensely. You're holding out on yourself. You're playing, like what C.S. Lewis said, you're playing with mud pies in the slums, and there's been a holiday at the sea offered for you. Take it. 